Welcome to This Week in Photo. Bandwidth for this podcast is brought to you by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This episode is brought to you by Shutterstock.com with over 28 million high-quality stock photos, illustrations, vectors, and video clips. Shutterstock helps you take your creative projects to the next level. For 25% off your new account, just go to Shutterstock.com and use the offer code TWIP1013. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code TWIP10. This week on TWIP, Nikon files a patent for an interchangeable sensor camera, a priest stops a wedding ceremony to scold a photographer, a roundtable discussion on learning light, plus an interview with marketing expert Nathan Morris. It's Wednesday, October 3rd, 2013, and this is TWIP. Welcome back to TWIP. I'm your host, Martin Bailey, filling in for Frederick this week. And joining me to discuss the topics of the week and more are Ron Brinkman and Charlie McPherson. Hi, guys. Hello. Hi there, Martin. Hey, it's uh, it feels strange. It's the second time I've stood in for Frederick, but it feels strange doing this. Uh, so uh, the listeners as well, you can look forward to a, a clunky ride today as I, uh, as I work through this. Well, I'm all I'm all uh, hopped up on on cold medicine, so it all feels rather surreal to me. Anyway, you'll, you'll, uh, you will probably notice the change in my voice since there's no air flowing through my nostrils, <laughs> and you'll also probably notice that I sometimes just slow down as I'm speaking. <laughs> yeah, you you sound like one of those synchronized swimmers with the nose things on to keep you. Yeah, that's yeah. what I feel like. So oh, dear. I'm hoping this is the tail end of it, and, and I'm going to be back to normal soon. But uh, no fun, definitely yeah. no fun. <laughs> okay, so what have you been up to recently, Ron? Uh, besides uh, getting over the cold, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I think it's only been a few weeks since I've been on, which is actually kind of uh, uh, a rare, a rare thing for me. I've been a little bit more few and far between. But no, I'm, I'm still, as I said last time, I'm in the midst of wedding planning, so. Uh, we've got a story this week talks about a wedding photographer that uh, I'll have some thoughts on this for sure. <laughs> yeah, congratulations on that. It's, yeah, thank uh, it's you. great. Thank you. Yep. Yeah. So, Charlie, how about you? What have you been up to? Well, my wife and I just celebrated 34 years of uh, wedded bliss. And, uh, oh. Wow. It's, it, you know, Ron, it's easy if you marry up. And that, that's what there I you did. Go. Well, I that's did. what I'm doing, so good thing. I get very lucky, so... <laughs> So, uh, in the last eight weeks, I've done about 25,000 miles, wow. and uh, believe it or not, my, uh, my little Thunderbolt drive here is throbbing with uh, 14,000 new images I have to go through. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, that's going to be but, fun. You know, I'm, I'm mostly a wildlife photographer, so, so yeah. uh, and you know the, the deal with wildlife is that uh, you, know, you come upon a subject and you start blasting away just... You know, you, do you take the first shot because it might be the only one you get, and exactly. then you work to remove it. Yeah. And yeah. next thing you know, you're sitting there trying to figure out why your next terabyte got full so fast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, it, wildlife photography is all—you always shoot more. You just—I mean, the decide—you can't control the decisive moment, so you have to yeah. keep shooting until 
exactly you're, right. you're happy that you've got something. So yeah. Now, are you, Martin, are you shooting the One DX? I am. Yes. Yeah, I am I, too. I just got it about uh, about eight weeks ago. Yeah. Right oh. before the first trip to Alaska, and uh, I will tell you that the as as you know, then the the twelve frames per second burst rate is just oh, yeah. yeah, it's very oh, nice. What a dream when you're shooting wildlife. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. It's very nice. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I why I buy the one series bodies. Is, I mean, like the, I had the 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 Mark IV as well, and uh, yeah, you know, it's it's nice. And that extra couple of frames is uh, just gives you the the perfect wing wing position, or you know, the, sure. and that's well, especially birds in flight. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I shot the uh, the seven D for quite a while at yeah. eight frames per second. The mm. one the, the Mark IV at ten, and now the one DX at twelve, which is. Yeah, I mean, for for almost nothing else in the world, does it matter? Maybe yeah, sport. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, as we say, we're not going to jump into a whole conversation about gear, but um, yeah. you know, gear doesn't matter in a lot of respects. But sometimes, just having that extra bit of, uh, you know, the technology can help you to to nail a shot that you wouldn't have got otherwise. So it's, I think, it's only true to a degree. It depends what you're shooting. Yeah, I, I yeah. Agree. And there can be such a difference between some of these wildlife photos, where you know, if the legs. Overlap each other, or the positioning of the animal is just slightly weird, and you know, a, a fraction of a second later, everything clears up, and you just have so much better sense of form. So yeah, it's really uh, it's exciting to think. You know, I mean, uh, talk about the amount of memory you're filling up now, though. Just imagine whenever in another few years, when you're able to capture, you know, 60 frames a second or something <laughs> at that high resolution. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and be still my beating heart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it should be great, but boy, you know, the, the time is going to take to wade through it. You know, you really understand why we're going to start to need tools that are sort of more automated with kind of helping you wade through stuff and quickly get rid of the stuff that doesn't work as well. Oh, for yeah. sure, for sure. Yeah. I mean, thankfully, though, it's all getting cheaper. I mean, I, I remember spending $500 on my first external hard drive that was 128 megabytes so <laughs> so i uh you know thankfully now we can get like four terabytes for half that price so it's 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 all sort of changing but really like you say ron i mean that the processing power is going to be the thing and the time to actually do it so the tools are certainly going to change yeah for me it's it really was i mean i've got a whole bunch of stuff from my my last trip to to asia and borneo and singapore and all that and uh I just haven't had time to go through them, so you know it's it's not the the disk space is fine, but it's just the time to sit down and decide which one of these are images that are worth showing and sharing, and which ones are just you know hide away never to be seen again. It's just such a time consuming process. Absolutely, absolutely. So yeah, I mean, I, uh, so recently, I mean, I've I've just got back from Iceland. I'm traveling with Tim. I know you've been you've been with uh, working with Tim recently as well, Charlie. He's a nice guy, isn't he? He's a very nice guy, and uh, I'll have a tour going there next year, uh, as I'm sure you will too. Yeah, yeah, we've uh, we've both got uh, we've both got tours set up next year, so it's. Uh, I have to say, Iceland is a very strange place. <laughs> Why do you so say much. that? It's well, it's it's very European in in the hotels and the food. Um, it's impossible to get a cup of coffee. I mean, you get a micro cup, a little <laughs> cup. It is so bizarre. The um, the landscape with its old lava fields that are covered in moss. It sees these loose boulders, and it's, they go on as far as the eye can see. And all I can think of is if you're an invading army, <laughs> that's a pretty good defense. <laughs> oh, the, yeah. the broken ankles would be lined up for miles. I mean, yeah. just, I, I, just I, don't, 
I don't think Iceland's ever been invaded. That's probably true. No. Yeah. Yeah. Well, not a lot of natural resources, but boy, those yeah. bunker fields. Yeah. And then uh, uh, you know, for any any of the listeners who who haven't been there, you you know, these days you start to see so many pictures on the web because it's just such a, you know, it's actually an easy place to get to, easy to get around, and just so incredibly photogenic. But I mean, yeah. I love it. I've been there a couple times and. I'm all ready to, to head back and do it again. And it's just, yeah. I don't know, it's just, it's so different from what you see in so many other places. Yeah, it's, yeah. it and is they, incredible. They do drive on the correct side of the road, too. So yeah? Yeah, <laughs> for you guys, of course. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah but uh, so I, I, uh, I'm also, I'm seeing a bit of a pickup on my, uh, the, it's the time of year where everyone's starting to think about next year. So I, my Jap- Japan Winter Wonderland tours are, starting to get a little bit of traction again so it's nice to see those starting to fill up um but yeah we're, we're all uh, you know we're, we're doing some great stuff and uh i uh, i'm looking forward to getting into the rest of the conversation so let's jump into it okay so before we do that i'd like to thank one of the sponsors this week squarespace This episode of This Week in Photo is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial and 10% off, just go to squarespace.com and use the offer code TWIP10. Now, Squarespace offers some really cool features. The first thing that I'd like to talk about is customizations. Your Squarespace website can be made to look unique and personal with just a few clicks. And they've got this concept of Squarespace gallery blocks. These are blocks that can be added anywhere on your website, and they offer hundreds of presentation variations, including slideshows, sliders, grid layouts, and more. And Squarespace as a company is continually improving. They're constantly improving the platform with new features, new designs, and even better support. They've got beautiful designs for you to start with and all the style options you need to create a unique website for both you and or your business. Plus, it's easy to use. If you want some help, Squarespace has an amazing support team that works 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And also, one of the cool things about Squarespace is they employ this technique called responsive design. That means every design automatically includes a unique mobile experience that matches the overall style of your website, so your content will look great on every device every time. And pricing, it just starts at $8 a month, and that includes a free domain name if you sign up for a year. So you can start with a free trial. You don't need a credit card. And you can start building your website right away. Then when you decide to sign up for Squarespace, just make sure to use the offer code TWIP10 to get 10% off and to show your support for This Week in Photo. And we thank Squarespace for their support of our show. Squarespace, it's everything you need to create an exceptional website. Okay, and also check out the new All About the Gear show that Doug and Frederick are doing. So basically, Doug borrows some, that's Doug Doug K and Frederick Van Johnson, of course. Uh, So basically, Doug borrows gear from borrowlenses.com and puts it through its paces and then discusses his findings with with frederick so it's it's a really really cool new show so do check that out and they're the recent episode they're talking about the sony rx1r and the first topic that we were going to jump into this week is uh there's been some interesting patent filings happening recently 
but a recent filing from Nikon could prove to be very interesting. And the you know if it comes to market, they what they've done is they've found a patent for a camera that would feature an interchangeable sensor. So medium format camera manufacturers have allowed photographers to switch out and upgrade their backs for years, but this would mark the first time we've seen this in a DSLR. And um, you know I'm sure that there's going to be so much that this can uh, enable. So what do you, Ron? What do you think about? Uh, this sort of a modular system is it is it an interesting thing to you it's sort of interesting i mean it's certainly a very specialized kind of thing and you know there there are certain disciplines where people have been already modifying their cameras you hear about a lot of people taking off the the anti-aliasing filter mm. if they've got an older camera and they want to do that um there's certainly reasons to uh, you know you can buy a few cameras that have just pure black and white sensors yeah, which will radically increase your 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 resolution of what you're shooting because you're not, you know, devoting a third of your pixels to uh, each color kind of thing. Yeah. So I, I think you know I think it makes sense for certain people, but you know it, it it's I don't know it's going to be a pain. I, I I just can't see it being any kind of a mainstream solution. I think it's for somebody who is really it, it fits in this weird niche because it's somebody who has these needs for various things. But if you've got the amount of money that it's probably going to take to buy a new sensor, probably that not that much more to just buy another camera. So I'm not quite sure where it would fit. Yeah, yeah. How, how about how about you, Charlie? Do you think this would be something that would work fit into your workflow? Probably not for me and the kind of shooting I do. But a couple of things crossed my mind. I mean, the first thing I thought of was, boy, this will make it easy to clean sensors. <laughs> not having to reach inside the box, right? <laughs> so yeah, just wipe it. <laughs> Take it out and give just, it away. You, you just unplug it, look at it, blow it off, dust it off, and uh, and give it a clean. It would be nice if you could have a modular infrared filter, so you could you could shoot infrared, and then when you're done with that, you can snap it on and have your nice RGB sensor put back in place. But um, I think the biggest advantage I see is that as technology advances and we get you know, maybe better dy dynamic range, maybe better low noise performance, maybe more pixels, although I'm not convinced I need more pixels. Uh, you know, I think it would be nice to snap in the, you know, 2018 sensor in my, you know, 2013 1DX and uh, still have my 12 frames per second, although that'll probably be obsolete by that point, too. Yeah, I, I think... Yeah, go ahead, Ron. Sorry. Well, yeah, I guess I was sort of thinking of it in the scenario of I would have a camera and then a couple different options for what kind of a sensor I would put in it based on my specific needs. But it's a good point that instead of that, is this maybe a move towards even more modular than we have now, where the sensor, just like the lens, is something that can be swapped out and then, more importantly, can be upgraded without having to upgrade the entire body. Mm -hmm. It feels like it's almost, at that point, it just becomes a business decision. You know, what's what's the cost of the body versus the cost of the sensor and is it really you know is Nikon or Canon or anybody really going to want to offer that level of upgradability which could potentially take away from their sales of selling entirely right. new bodies so and that, that's uh, the point if you, if you make it modular enough you're going to you're going to cannibalize your own sales if you're Nikon or right. Canon so that doesn't really make a very much business sense from their perspective although I think it'd make a lot of us happy yeah I think the uh, the thing is as well we that 
you know when you when a camera body is upgraded it's it's not they don't just use their old body and stick in a new sensor they've got all of the new chips to i mean if if you go from a 20 megapixel um sensor to say a 36 you've got to pump a hell of a lot more information through the camera so it'd be interesting to see i mean i haven't checked out the the patent here but it'd be interesting to see if it if, if it's like a back they could include the new image processing chips and everything in the back and you right. just you just put the whole thing in but if it's just the sensor then obviously the camera itself isn't going to cope with the new load of of the you know the the pixels and things so there's there's going to be a, a, a lot of um you know, it's going to be interesting to see exactly how it's implemented. Uh, yeah, it seems like you'd almost have to really have the whole the bus between the the sensor and the and the writing to the card all be replaced at that point. And then, really, what you're just right. talking is, you know, the mechanics of the of the camera, the, right. the shutter, and all that sort of thing. Yeah, stay the same. Yeah, you wouldn't have to upgrade the mirror. Right. right. So, and, exactly. Yeah. I mean, so so you're probably going to end up with pretty much all of the the operating system, or you know, all of the firmware and everything, all in a module that slots into the back, and then you know, and so that so like like Ron says, you know, it's just a really the camera just becomes the um, the 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 you know light sealed box that it all fits into. Yep. Yeah. So having it having it interchangeable for infrared might be mildly amusing and. I don't know. Aside of that, I'm just, I'm just not totally convinced it's, uh, it's going to grab my attention. But you know, I want to point out this was um, the story we we picked up off of uh, Nikon rumors. Yeah. And so in in that light, I'd like to start a new rumor. What's that? <laughs> so here's my rumor. I think Adobe is going to buy Nikon, and then all the new sensors are going to come out on a Creative Cloud model. You have to rent them month by month. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear, that'll upset a few people. And then, uh, if you don't if you don't log on for a month, your your camera stops working. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, uh, that that's a topic we'll uh, we should probably quickly move on from uh, <laughs> just just for the sake of uh, of keeping the comments down. But I mean, because I'm I'm actually quite I'm pretty pro Creative Cloud, and but I know that it's uh, it's created a big stir in the in the photography industry stuff. So it's uh, it's one of those things. I mean, it, obviously, it'd be funny if that sort of thing did happen. Oh, that'd be awful! Yeah. <laughs> oh my word, what have I done? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, tell you what, let's let's move on to the next story, and I know this is one that's going to be close to Ron's heart in the in the coming months. But uh, you know, so weddings are a once in a lifetime event, and couples often spend good money to hire a photographer to capture all of the special moments of the day, including the ceremony. But what happens when photographer the photographer interferes? with a solemn service and a recent video posted on YouTube shows a priest stopping the ceremony to scold the photographer and videographer who were standing behind him documenting the event while the couple look on in shock and embarrassment. So Charlie, did you did you take a look at the video? I did. Yeah. Do you think the the priest handled it appropriately appropriately or did he cause more of a scene with the with his little bit of an outburst? What a mess! Yeah. That was that was just awful. I made my skin crawl. It did. It felt it was it was uncomfortable to watch, wasn't it? Oh man, yeah. I, I just was glad I could turn away and not be involved in the in the real life scene. But mm. um, I did do a little digging. Cause I, you know, my my gut reaction was, well, this this photographer, he was just negligent. He didn't do his job. He didn't research. He didn't plan. He didn't meet with the pastor. Mm. Well, it turns out he did. Mm. He actually 
talk with the pastor before the ceremony. Now, whether the communications during that meeting was what it needed to be is a different question, and I just don't know the answer to that. But he did talk to the pastor beforehand, and the pastor said, just don't enter the aisle. Now, if you haven't seen the video, there was a photographer and videographer standing right behind the pastor, looking over the back, over his shoulder as he was starting to do the ceremony. And he just turned around. I think, what did he say? I think, I think he said, uh, just, I think he asked them to leave. He said, he said, can you now. leave? Yeah, leave now. He, he seemed calm enough, but you could see in his face that he was angry. And uh, yeah, he just said, leave now. They said, where do you want us to go? And he said, I don't care. Anywhere but from anywhere, anywhere but, but here. here. Yeah. So <laughs> it seems like if, if in fact the photographer did do the homework, it looks like he may have done. Mm. Then I think the pastor was just out of control and in, in a calm, a calm but firm and angry way. Yeah. yeah. And you could see that the poor bride and oh, the, 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 the bride and groom looked horrified. Oh boy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, oh, you know, oh, this is great. I can't Ron, wait. Ron, Ron, what, are you, what are your, what are your thoughts on this? Oh God. Well, you know, like I said, as, as we have been talking to wedding photographers and videographers and all of that, it's, um, you know, been been looking a lot more into what what it takes uh, on the wedding photography and videography side of things, and have seen so many reports of things going wrong. So at some point, I think you need to <laughs> just sort of be prepared for the inevitable. No, uh, you know, my take on this particular one is that I think the pastor was a little bit of a dick. I mean, he, you know. Can you say that? <laughs> I, I said it last week, but Frederick said it was okay with my British accent. There you go. Oh, I think it was a little bit of a dick, actually. <laughs> sort of a wanker, really. <laughs> Scottish accent. Oh, brilliant. Um, I mean, you know, and but we didn't see the beginning of it. Maybe, maybe he'd already asked them once or twice to kind of back off or come out of it. I mean, I understand his point, you know, and, and obviously if you, if you are having a, a wedding that is a religious ceremony and... You know, the intention is to make it a solemn occasion. Mm. It can be very obtrusive to have photographers, and for that matter, guests just going nuts with their cameras. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, and I think as a, as a society, we've gotten a lot worse with this. I was listening to somebody else the other day talking about how they were at a stage play in New York, and mm. people were holding up their cameras and rid of their phones, you know, mm. taking photos and stuff. And, you know, it, it's just a... I don't know. I, I mean, I'm very much considering, in fact, almost decided on just telling all of our guests at the wedding, put your phones away. We've hired a professional photographer. Go ahead and enjoy the moment. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll get the pictures, at least for this part of the ceremony. Once we go into the reception, go nuts, whatever. But for the ceremony itself, just, just you know, relax and be in the moment. And, you know, it felt like the priest could have handled it better. You didn't see any of the interaction with the photographer but there's certainly in a whether or not they were being too obtrusive i can't tell you know you can't tell from that but they are certainly in a position where their job is to work for the bride and the groom not for the priest and so they're, they're really stuck in the middle there where if the priest says you've got to leave you know what do you do you really have to ask the bride and the groom should i leave or should i keep going yeah it sounded like he did yeah, well, yeah. the the I, thing I is, as well, is he, he, he kind of put them all in a position because he said he's going to stop the ceremony if they don't leave. Right. Right. Um, you know, the thing that I noticed, though, if you listen to the audio, you can hear 
the photographer obviously the video videographer's just there he's rolling he's not making right. any noise right. the the still photographer is just mashed down on his on his yeah. uh, shutter shutter button you can hear yeah. him almost constantly it's like the paparazzi he's brr, 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 brr. Right. and that is probably what annoyed the the priest and honestly i don't think he needs to take that many shots to capture the moment uh, you yeah. know what? If, if frederick was here you know what he'd be saying what o m d yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. I mean, no mirror clacking right. up and down. Yeah, I mean that, that's a good that's a good argument. But uh, you know, I mean, whether you, whether you put the camera into silent mode or whatever you do, the the guy, I personally don't think he needs a hundred frames of them standing in front of the altar. Um, probably more, just in the in the space of that video. So, um, I think that it's a it's a like as we say in the UK, probably in the US as well. It's six of one and half a dozen of the other. The um, the guy, the, the, the photographer was, I think, going a little bit over the top with his frames, um, but there was, there was a little bit too little um, flexibility and understanding on, the, on the, the side of the pastor as well. Yeah, and it, you have to remember, too, that if you haven't seen the video, the, the photographer was right behind the pastor's head. Yeah, yeah. And my, my guess is... He was that, probably just annoying the hell out of him. Yeah, yeah I think... They probably did have that meeting, and the pastor probably did say, "Just don't get in the aisle." And I think the pastor probably never envisioned did it yeah. <laughs> this machine gun wildlife twelve right. frame per second photographer right behind his head. Right, and yeah. that's, and that's what I think was the, the major like catalyst. Yeah, he did look like he snapped. Yeah, yeah, he went overboard. Uh, my my guess is he regrets that reaction too. <laughs> I, I think he probably does, especially in the light of of what's you know what's happening now with this going public, but. Yeah, I think it's you, so. I think the takeaway for any wedding photographers is just be a little bit more, not, not maybe not so much discreet, but just be a little bit more thoughtful about how you actually do the the photography because you know it it's it, it is invasive. If you if you're going to be standing right behind someone, clicking away at, at like I don't know maybe five or or eight frames per second or whatever, it's it's 12. annoying. Well, it's, it felt it felt. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it felt pretty fast. You know, when you could when you could hear it on the on the video, it was pretty fast. Yeah. Um, but it yeah. was just constant. It was just like a constant stream of of photographs, and it would have annoyed me. And I'm a photographer, so you yeah. know, when I when I was on the show, whatever it was, two three weeks ago, and and we had talked about uh, uh, sort of micro four thirds and and you know some of the smaller mirrorless setups and. Frederick asked me, you know, what what would your reaction be if your wedding photographer showed up and was not shooting with a full DSLR, shooting with a, a mirrorless sort of a system? Yeah. And, and you know, my response was, I wouldn't necessarily count them out, but you know, I would certainly want to know why why they're deciding to do that, what their rationale is for shooting hmm. shooting mirrorless. But you know, this is this is something we didn't bring up, which I think is an excellent point. That you know, you could really make the claim that the the silence, you know, being able to shoot silently is a very valid and, and a useful thing to have in a wedding scenario like this where you don't want to be interrupting and it's already obtrusive enough that you're walking around but having that clack 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 going off uh, it's it's a valid point to mm. get something in there that's not quite so loud yeah well i mean the, the cameras do have a silent mode as well and and although it's not totally silent yeah the, it's not uh, that silent it's it's yeah. it's like a it's like a slow slap isn't it have you have you used it right. it's just like a little a little yeah. slapping sound, um, but it, it's. Uh, I think that the other the thing with that as well is it would slow the photographer down. So even if he mashed down on it, he's only going to be taking one or two frames a second. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean the 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 yeah, OMD. If you're, if, 
if you're on the OMD or something like that, you can it's, shoot. What does it shoot at? I think it's just a twelve, isn't it? Yeah, twelve or yeah, I think it's just a twelve with you know no uh, no clicking. Yeah, yeah, and the 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 other thing is as well is the depth of field is starting to be there. You know, with these cameras, if you if you use a bright a nice fast lens and open it up, you still get some nice bokeh there as well. So it's uh, it's not something that we we're ruling out. Um, you know, the obviously the image that you project when you turn up with a with a camera like that may not be be for everyone. So, like, I mean, like you said, Ron, you'd probably be asking that why they're doing that. But it's, um, you know, I don't think it's going to be very long. But I mean, people have shot shot weddings with with iPhones, although yeah, that's sure. probably more for a gimmick than. No, I have to tell you, a, a couple of years ago, I was doing my, uh, I was in between bird photography tours out in Florida, and I had a nice place in Fort Myers Beach, and um, I was I was just there for an extra day. And a wedding just popped up out of the clear blue sky <laughs> on the beach in front of me. I'm sitting there with my 600 millimeter. And I thought, oh, gosh, I can't help it. And I shot. I shot the <laughs> wedding. <laughs> and I got to tell you, from maybe 100 feet away with that 600 millimeter, yeah. you can do some pretty good work. So maybe that's the answer. Maybe, maybe you can get 100 yards away and yeah. you have a super telephoto. Well, yeah. <laughs> you probably know, and, not. <laughs> but, you know, there's... The, Shooting with a longer lens is going to get you your depth of field back too, though. Yeah, so sure. you know there are the whole combination. I could you could make a very good case for I'm going to shoot micro four thirds. I'm going to put a longer lens on it, you know, so I can still get the depth of field. I can also be back farther away. I you know there's I don't know makes a lot of sense. You know I think the lesson for wedding photographers who are approaching this kind of a situation is to is to have that meeting. You know, survey the site, survey the people, survey the pastor. Ask him what he wants, and then be really, really, really clear. This is where I'm going to be. Is that okay? This is what it's going to look like and sound like, and this is where the cables are going to run. This is where the lights are going to be, if any of that's appropriate. And make sure that just don't blindside the pastor. Don't blindside anybody. You know, I mean, I, I, I shot just a couple of weddings when I thought I might like to tinker with that for part of my living, and I, I immediately decided <laughs> never again but um, but the couple i did i mean i was out there you know one week ahead of time at the exact time of day so i could see where the light was coming from see what the backgrounds would be i and planned everything out just you cannot blindside people even mm. I mean, especially inadvertently it's kind of how it happens and i think my, my guess is that's what happened in this case is that the pastor expected there would be photographers around because they asked permission mm. and didn't think there'd be this little machine gun going off behind his head as he's trying to read the solemn ceremony and yeah. i think that's probably why you snapped yeah that's exactly what but, i think but how, so. how embarrassing for everybody oh yeah i mean because like like we said the, the bride and groom looked horrified i mean I, I felt i felt sorry for those guys more than anything i think that's the rule of thumb is when anything goes viral at least one party is really embarrassed and wish they could have the whole thing back yeah did, did you guys ever see that video of the the wedding photographer that was i think he was backtracking and just fell into a into say. a pool oh he, gosh yeah there, no. there's, <laughs> there are, a, I mean, if you just go on YouTube and you search search for uh, wedding photographer disaster or something along those lines, there are people that have put yeah. together long compilations of all the stuff that goes wrong or wedding disasters <laughs> in general, not just photographers. But, uh, mm. you know, you, you can spend a good half an hour watching a lot of uh, ridiculous wedding-related things, as we have done. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I, that's I, that's why I'd much rather talk to polar bears. You know, if you know where you stand <laughs> with the polar bear, it will yep. kill you and it will eat you. And it's not because he doesn't like you; it's because he does. You know, it's no surprises. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
So uh, let's move on. Uh, we, we've, next up, we've got a, a roundtable discussion. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about light. You know, we talk about gear and changes in technology, but one thing that hasn't changed for a few thousand years, a few million years, uh, is light. So we're going to take a little bit of a deeper dive into the discussion and learn a little bit about light. So, uh, Ron, tell us about the properties of light. <laughs> well, that, gee, that's a nice, narrow little topic, isn't it? <laughs> uh, you know, I think as a photographer, you, you obviously just need to get your head around what, what light does and how it behaves and all the different sort of lighting scenarios that, that you may encounter. I don't, I, don't almost, I almost don't know that you can study it so much as you just sort of have to get an intuitive feel for it. But one thing I do know is that I still have situations where my brain is not really showing me what the camera's going to see. Mm. And that's really, you know, it makes sense because your brain is designed to do exactly that. It's designed to tell you what's going on, not to tell you, you know, give you a literal interpretation of it. I still remember, like, the best example of this was I was somewhere wandering around Seattle and I was passing by an old uh, railway station and there were a couple of boxcars in there. And I just saw an interesting shot and I composed it and took the photo and then I get back home and I'm looking through it and I realize that the photo I'd taken of this sort of side of a boxcar had this huge shadow going across it. And I had not even seen the shadow at all when I took the photo. I was focused on the texture of the boxcar. I was focused on the, you know, there's a little sign there that was nicely aged and everything, rust streaks coming down from it. And I had all these little things that I, I had looked at when I was composing the shot saying, that's going to be really interesting looking. But my brain had completely removed the sense that there was this tremendous shadow going across half the thing. And it ruined the photo, obviously. You, you, there's no way to recover the fact that half of it is probably five stops darker than the other half of the photo. But my brain had absolutely not, not taught me, to, you know, it had tricked me into not seeing that. And, and that's what it does, right? Because for most people, that information is not useful at all. And so I think... You know, it's it's a combination of things, and maybe it's still just a lot of chimping where you need to to look at the back of your camera every once in a while and make sure that what you you thought you saw is what your camera saw. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I it probably it doesn't really work for street photography, but I find that when I'm doing landscapes and and uh, you know more still life, I I love working in live view because it takes that three dimensional world that our eyes are used to seeing. Even through the view, through the viewfinder, our eyes are used to seeing. And like you say, it, it does all of this weird computing and sort of Photoshop stuff in the background, and just changes it. So we don't notice things like that. But if you put it into a two-dimensional photograph, which is essentially what you're looking at on the back of the camera in live view, um, you it, you see it more. And, and like you say, chimping as well will help. Um, but it's if you're in really fast fast-paced situation where you know, you're, you're, street, you're running and gunning, you're doing your street photography, then it's, uh, I guess you really need to train yourself to to see that stuff because it, it does, I know what you mean, it, it, it can be very easy to overlook something that your brain just is, is wired to get rid of. Yeah, and I mean, it's not just light. There's, there's all sorts of things where, you know, the other classic example is not realizing that, you know, you, when you're taking a photo of somebody that there's a lamppost coming out of the top of their head or something like that. And I think you were saying, though, at the start there, Ron, that it, a lot of it is is not so much about learning it. It's more intuitive, just doing it. And the more you you make those mistakes, the more you, you know, you pay attention to. You, I'm, I'm 
a big believer in the fact that you know, we build up a little a database of images and it's not only built up of all of our successful images it's it's built up of our mistakes as well yeah um, absolutely and you run when you when you're starting to frame a shot and compose a shot you you the brain is going through this database of images pretty fast and if you if you make a a point of looking you know searching out your mistakes and making just saying to yourself you know i should be more careful in that situation then I think you start to you start to recognise it with recognition based on on what you've um, what you've shot in the past and your previous mistakes. So it's I think it's good to understand. You know, when you go back to your computer and you find that there's a lamppost growing out of someone's head, then just make sure that you you put that into your database and draw on it as you shoot in the future. Yeah, I mean, th- there's no better teacher than than failure. And I mean, and, and there's you know there there's an infinite number of mistakes that you can make when you're shooting something yeah and you, you need to make a lot of those before you can sort of learn what they are and you know they, they say it takes 10,000 hours of uh, doing anything to get really really good at it and you know most of that is because you're making mistakes all the time and learning the things not to do so much as anything else hmm. yeah so Charlie how about you what what do you what do you um what do you look at when you're when you're starting to work in a in a location you know, <clears throat> lighting is—it's—it's um, <laughs> it's one of those things that's all around us all day, every day. And then when you start telling photographers that they have to look at the light and see the light and think about the light, I think the first reaction—I I think my first reaction when I was starting out was, "Don't don't be silly." I mean, what do, what do you mean see the light? It's right there and. You know, with, with um, experience and practice, and as Ron said, making lots and lots of mistakes, you know, you start thinking about the the, the key properties for me. And I, I don't shoot in studios um, where I'm, I'm virtually 100% nature and wildlife. So the properties of light that most interest me are, <clears throat> is the light hard or is it soft? Uh, what's the angle? What's the color? And uh, is it is it helping me? Can I can I position myself so I can backlight a polar bear, or can I backlight the wings of this bird? And when I can use the light in that in that regard, uh, you find you know, backlighting. I've got a couple of shots that um, I just love of polar bears from this past trip to Alaska just a few weeks ago, where we we got ourselves around in the boat to get the sun behind the polar bear, mm, yeah. and so. The whole rim of the fur. You could, if you could see me, I'm talking with my hands right now. Yeah, my, I, my I can, see, I can right see the photograph <laughs> you're thinking of. <laughs> so that the whole rim of the fur lights up, and then in the studio, of course, you call out a rim light or a kicker light, and you work or a hair light, and you work very hard to get it. But you know, when you're out in nature, if you can position yourself to get that backlight in such a way that it's not silhouetting the subject, but but making the the wing of the fur just pop um, that that's that's really you know it's one of the things I strive for and I I strive to teach that on my tours and you know kind of help people see that light mm. but it, in in portraiture I'll I'll still do a few outdoor portraits little um, environmental portraiture and uh, I like going over with people the um, the difference between hard light and soft light and learning what that is and I, I I'll I'll take a couple of shots outside with myself and hard light and of course, you know, I'm squinting, and every wrinkle on my face looks like a mountain range. And you know, if you have a if you have a zit on your nose, it looks like a volcano. You know, it just makes makes every imperfection just 
jump off your face and it's just the worst kind of light there is. And so, you know, I'll try to coach people along to, okay, let's, let's first of all, let's look for open shade. Uh, if it's, if there's some high diffused overcast, perfect. If there's no overcast, is there a cloud coming? You know, can, can we watch for a big puffy cloud to block the sun and soften the light up that much more? Mm. And those kind of things really, really help in making portraits that just, if I can be so blunt, portraits that don't suck. Mm. <laughs> but what, what about a diffuser or, I mean, so you could, you could probably simulate the, uh, you know the the overcast. If if you were to to put a, a half stop diffuser over somebody, or maybe use a reflector, uh, some some diffusers also act as reflectors. So you just pop a little bit of light in to fill those valleys and and the cracks. So do you do anything like that in your in your portraiture? I do. I'll use um, one of the five in one diffusers. I'll use something like a thirty six inch, and um, I'm I'm not a fan of kicking in um, hard light by means of one of the, like the silver reflector. Oh, no, silver's horrible. I have, I have never seen a use for the gold reflector. Oh, no, gosh. No. Why do they put those things in there? And I imagine but, that they've got a use if it's, if you're in, if you're photographing someone with, say, a, uh, a, a warm, you know, a, a very warm sunset or something like that behind them. But it's, yeah, I know but, what you but then mean. The white, the white reflector would kick in the same sunset the warm, color. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, so. the silver should be banished from, I mean, well, gold too. Oh, I've never, yeah. I've, I've got both of them and I've never used them. Yeah, specular um, highlights are not your friend. They're really not. And, you know, I'll tell you the one time I've used silver. Okay, true confessions, you ready? <laughs> so, <laughs> in shooting macro with extension tubes, I'm getting extreme magnification. I have actually used the specular highlights that come off the silver reflector to kick a very bright light in to my little flower. So it it's, may as well be a flashlight, but, yeah. but I actually have used it once. But um, I, I do like diffusers, but I'm, I'm not a fan of kicking in, uh, having, the, having the subject in hard light so they're squinting and then kicking in a fill light. I'd I, I much rather have them behind a diffuser and, and get the hard light off their face. Yeah, yeah. I, I find that, um, you know, I mean, you, you mentioned the diffused light. I love overcast days. I love heavy skies. There, the there are, yeah, the best. Yeah, there are so many people that um, that see a, a nice blue sky and, and grab the camera and run out. Right. Um, and you hear so many people saying, oh, that it's it's going to be, you know, we're getting into the, the winter. It's going to be cold or it's going to be raining. And that gives me plenty of time to uh, to do my post-processing. I that's when I love to grab the camera and go out. I mean, I would much rather shoot on a day when it's absolutely pouring with rain than than a, a bright blue sky. So it's just, yeah, the hot, the light gets harsh. Um, rain it's, itself, I mean, and excuse the pun, it actually saturates the colors. Yeah, you, uh, right, if, it yeah, does. It, yeah. uh, you, can, you can sometimes find yourself having to deal with a little bit of reflection, which a polarizer can do, uh, you know, can work, work out of the scene. But... Um, yeah, soft light. Um, I even in Iceland, the um, the participants, some of them, it can obviously. You you both know it can get tedious working in the rain pretty much every day. It um, does. <laughs> but it but it's uh, you know that it just makes it brings out the the greens so much more, and um, it, it's so nice to work in a, a in overcast. I mean, the ideal situation for Iceland is just those big heavy skies when it's not actually raining. Yeah, um, that's when you can do the most. Well, High diffuse overcast. La last time I was in Iceland was mid June, 
uh, was it, you know, a few years back, but in mid-June, uh, so, you know, uh, 24 hour sun and I was shooting at two in the morning, you know, getting shots. So we're just, you know, cause it's magic hour for 12 hours. Sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, <laughs> like great. More. yeah. And, and it's just, you know, it's amazing. I mean, there's a reason why they call it magic hour, you know, or golden hour, that sunset and sunrise kind of time where the sun isn't up high enough to, to really cause shadows, but it's bouncing up enough off of the, off of the atmosphere that you can still illuminate everything. Yeah. And it's just beautiful. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, yeah. the thing is that you you can look out and you know, look look across and find out what find where the sun is even at 11 a.m. or or midday. Uh I mean, we we were there in late August, September, and the sun never gets much more than like 25 degrees or 30 degrees above the horizon. So it's you you're not far from the golden hour pretty much all the time. Um but then, you know, the the good thing about when we were there is that the it did um we did get a a short night and so we were also able to we were treated with a display of the aurora on two yeah. nights so it's nice to it's nice to have some dark um i mean and i actually when i when i was down in antarctica last year we there were a, a few places where it just didn't we when we were as far south as as we were going to be on the voyages it just didn't get dark the sky just went to like a beautiful pink and the sun dipped just below the horizon before coming back up again um and there are there are great opportunities to be had in that sort of light but it it also can be very tiring because you 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 don't want to go to bed you know you you've sure. got to sleep at some point but if the light's great 24 <laughs> hours it yep. it can be tiring so yeah it, but it does throw you off it's what sorry it does throw you off it does it does yeah, yeah no it's, in, it's... in Iceland, i remember you know you you had to find a, a room that had nice thick curtains and and you know it's light out you just and i mean literally the, the farmers were still out in their fields plowing at two three in the morning because you know they're taking advantage of it as well and you're just like well i guess we have to go to bed but it was just odd yeah where i go in alaska it's we're at uh, 70 degrees latitude nice we're out on a little island in the Arctic Ocean for the polar bears, and um, even in August, the sun goes down for eh, you know an hour, hour and a half. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So you know the bad side of that, of course, is there's no shot at Northern Lights, but um, mm, yeah. you know, <laughs> on yeah, the other hand, it's not it's not minus forty either. Yeah, yeah. So so when when we're shooting, um, what sort of things do you? Obviously, we're talking about the the diffused light. Um, for for example, when when I approach a shot, if if I have an angle that I if I can move around, you know, one of the things that I often do when I get when I find a subject that I want to shoot is to start to to circle around and and you know you can make such a different image with say if you have backlight or side light, you know, side light will will bring out all of the textures. Um, the front front light, I'm not a big fan of it. It can be a it, you know obviously it it fills in all of the all of the uh, the cracks and you know it, it but it's very textureless. So you know depending on what you want to do, is, is there anything that you guys bear in mind as you approach a subject uh, with regards to the the light? You know not just the quality of the light but the direction. So Ch Charlie, is there anything that you do specifically there? You know for my subjects, and I, I'd actually encourage the listeners to think about this <clears throat> as. Um, we're coming up to fall foliage season season here in the north, and uh, for those in the southern hemisphere, sorry, <laughs> your your time will come. But um, you know, as you're out there looking at the foliage, uh, use that use that hard light. If you've got a hard light day, that's otherwise 
you know, not the best day for portraiture. Maybe, you know, it could be okay for landscapes. But look at that foliage and backlight it. Position yourself, zoom with your feet, and backlight that foliage. If you're out shooting wildlife, backlight it. You know, backlight doesn't have to be that that picture everybody has of Aunt Millie standing in the kitchen against the window and, you know, the outside is exposed perfectly and Aunt Millie's a silhouette, right? doesn't have to be that. If, if you backlight your subject properly and, and do it under control, it, really by positioning yourself with respect to the subject, backlighting can really work. I mean, I, I use it on birds and, you know, a lot of the other wildlife I do and foliage, and it can really help. So you think about the direction of the light, think about the angle of light, think about the color of the light, think about whether it's hard or soft, and you know, just examine the situation and, and try to figure out how can I use this light to my advantage, even if it's not the light I had hoped for. You can always find a way to use it to your advantage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. How about you, Ron? Is there anything that specifically you think about? Well, you know, I, I come at it from sort of a weird perspective in that my most of my sort of still photography work is more, uh, you know, travel photography. So a lot of landscapes, a lot of just get the shot of a particular scene or something like that, and not really portraiture at all because you know sometimes you've got a subject that will pose a little bit. Usually, I'm just sort of grabbing shots and sort of waiting for the light to hit it. And then most of the most of the kind of human photography, if you will, that I've done has actually been when I was working in the film industry where it was almost all on set, where we control everything. And you know, and then it's about, all right, I need a key and I need a fill and I'm going to set up a rim light here. And it's much more controlled and very cinematic looking and you, you're tending to balance your key and your fill and putting in a rim to outline stuff. And, you know, and then the, the trick becomes, uh, how do you make that work when the actor is moving around in the scene? You know, how, what, what's your compromise for you know, lighting so that it works at the beginning of the shot and the end of the shot whenever they're walking down a hallway or something. So it's it's a totally different kind of world then because you're you're really trying to, and, and of course work quickly, but you're really trying to figure out a lot of different, serve a lot of different masters there in terms of making them look good, but also making sure that you, know, you can get the shot throughout the duration of the shot. So hmm. such well, a different scenario. Yeah, I mean that—that's a job just by itself. There, lighting for for the movies, I imagine. So, yeah, it's. Uh, but I mean, I I did. You you reminded me there that I you know when I first started using studio lights, I think working with lights, whether it's a, a flash in a in a softbox or an umbrella, or working with some sort of studio light, it does teach you a lot about the the light itself. Yeah, you know, where you put it, how. The further away it get you, it, you place the the light source from your subject. The harsher it gets. If you put it closer, it, it's more enveloping. And uh, obviously, you've as um, Charlie was mentioning earlier, that you, we've got kicker lights. There's all sorts of different ways that you can position lights. Um, I, I find that I learned. Well, I found that I learned a lot from working with studio lights as well, and that probably does help to teach us. Um, a little bit about light and how to control it and not only in the studio but outside because you it's basically the same thing it's just that you're using a lot of the time one big light source in the sky or uh, on an on as we were saying earlier an overcast day you've got this huge big softbox in the sky and you start to think about that more i think as you as you work and and work through different um you know, different ways styles of shooting 
Um, did do you guys did you have you had that sort of experience where you've learnt from one uh, type of shooting and, and applied it to another? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for for me, the other thing that really informed my sort of lighting experience and I suppose photography experience in general is I came out of a background of doing computer graphics and it, not so much in my day but especially nowadays they do a really accurate job of modeling different types of light most most 3d packages you can sort of choose the types of lights that you want to put into a scene uh, and, and they are designed to be very realistic to what the real light would do so you know it's it's, it's much cheaper to get yourself a 3d package um, piece of software, you know, you can get a lot of good software for free even, yeah. than going out and buying a whole bunch of different studio lights and learning how to position them, and it's much quicker too, but it, it'll really give you a feel for, you know, where would I put these lights in the scene to to light it up properly, so mm. it may be a, a good kind of starting point that is much easier to dive into and much less expensive to just look at some of these 3D packages and learn lighting from something like that. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, you can even do that uh, to a degree in in Photoshop extended the the extended version. They've got three yep. D modeling in there. So, um, if people are are already on board with that, especially with the Creative Cloud, where you where you get everything anyway, um, might be a, a good tool to start with if you've already got that. That's a good point. Yeah. Okay, so um, let's move on and take a look at. We've got a, a listener question before we finish. And so John Decker on Google asks, does anyone have thoughts on using software like Crodux PhotoQuote? Uh, and this, he says, is a random find on the internet for estimating usages for uh, commercial clients. And John also says that he's using Heron's book as a reference. Um, but do you, do you guys quote, uh, Charlie, do you, do you quote uh, prices for assignments or stock? Do you do that sort of work? I quote prices for assignments, so I'll do things like um, private photography tours. I just completed one through Wyoming and Montana, and I have a set rate for that. Um, I really, in my business model, I'm focused on photography tours. That's that's the business I'm building. Yeah. So uh, this probably will come as a shock to all sorts of people, but um, I just don't put any effort at all into the selling my images. It's, it's just not my model. So, you know, the, the, the opening question was, do, do we have thoughts on using software like CrocDoc? The answer is no, I don't. <laughs> so, but I, I, did, I did reach out to CrocDoc this morning and um, I asked him to give me a, a call and said I'd be on this podcast tonight. Hmm. And um, unfortunately, they didn't get back to me in, in time. So I, yeah. I was hoping to download them and get some information, but... And I um, I actually have a copy, so I can talk a little bit more oh, about good. that. Oh, good. Yeah, that'll be much more useful. <laughs> yeah. How about you, Ron? Do you uh, do you use this sort of services? I mean, I don't. I, I, from what I understand, you don't really try to sell your work either. No, I don't really. You know, I, I definitely consider myself more of a hobbyist. I, I have have one had one situation where I was approached. Uh, I've had a couple of situations, but one in particular I'm thinking of where I was approached to to use some of my photos, just sort of randomly and, and asked, you know, how much would I charge? And at that point I had no idea, so I went ahead and popped onto I don't actually remember which service I use, but you know, you search around the web eventually and you can find some rough idea of what's a, a reasonable thing to charge given a particular uh circulation of magazine in this case. And uh yeah. and so I used it for something like that. ASMP has some guidelines. 
Yes, yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, in John's question then, I mean, I, I've got experience with both of these, so I'll talk a little bit about this. Um, the the book that John has, the, the Heron's book, I, I used that for a number of years, and it's great for quoting prices for assignment work. Uh, you know, if you base your day rate, you have to calculate a day rate, and that has to be based on everything that you you um, expect all of the money that you expect to outlay insurance car rent uh, you know your mortgage everything that you need to live you have to throw all of that into a spreadsheet and then you you find out how much it's going to cost you to live for a year and then uh, obviously you're going to want to put a little bit more on for savings and things it should be a realistic view of what you need to live each year and then you divide that by the number of days that you think you're going to work each year now, if you're literally, if you're just getting into this and you've got a day job, you're going to think, well, yeah, I don't really need to support myself. But I, even when I had my old day job, I still calculated a day rate. And it was based on realistically what I would imagine I would, I would work each week doing assignments if that was all I was doing. And I think I, quote, I, I built it on working uh, four days a week. So, you know, if, you, if you're a full-time photographer... You're going to be doing marketing. You're going to be doing your post-processing. There's all sorts of things that you're going to be doing. So you don't want to try to assume that you're going to be working every single day. But three to four days is a, is a where most people work. You know the, the number that most people work to. So you're probably going to be working a couple of hundred days a year, and definitely not 300. 200 is probably about where you where you will you'll find yourself. You find your day rate, and then you work from there. And the the Herond book will it works gives you a lot of techniques for negotiation as well i mean people one of the biggest problems that i find people uh have have problems with is having the confidence to negotiate a price and heron the heron book is actually pretty good it's got a lot of good advice on that but the forms that you use there to formulate how much you would uh, charge someone for an assignment, a photography assignment, and then the the resulting work. Do you license it? Do you do you do a work for hire? There's all sorts of stuff that the Heron's book does does help with, and it's a it's a great base. But I found a number of years ago that the stock pricing in the Heron book uh, is basically useless now because you can't get. I mean, traditional stock pricing went out of the window a few years ago. And I used to license a number of images a month at, at the traditional prices. Um, it went down to a number a year. And now, I mean, I haven't even been, I've in fact, I mentioned on, on this week in, in photo last, last week, uh, I've joined Offset, which is a, a spin-off of Shutterstock. And they're basically, it's, it's a slightly higher level stocks, stock library but it's uh, it's definitely not the same prices that uh, photographers were getting years ago when traditional pricing was more uh, you know obviously people were prepared to pay for that uh, so I, I think that the heron book is great for that um, for the assignment work but as far as far as stock if you quote from the heron book for stock uh, sales you might as well just re you know just walk away because people aren't paying that anymore um, but the uh, the other part of it Photo quote. Again, this is great if you are working on assignments. And it's also based on the real world feedback from people. It's a database that people feedback how much they're actually getting for their photography and for their assignments. So it's it does help you with, with that feedback as well. 
Uh, but again, it, a lot of it's going to be common sense. If you do an assignment, you might also want to license the images and PhotoQuote will help you to, to calculate how much you should be getting for the the various rights you know you, is it going to be um a, you know what is it uh, forget the word um or, you know how much are you going to allow the the customer to do with your work are, are you going to be giving them all rights uh, which pr pr pretty much people should never really do or are you going to give them uh, a you know one year and they can use it for advertising or just or just in a for a calendar or a, you know, there's all of these things are all in there. So you 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 go through you you plug in the sort of um, license that you're being asked to quote for, and then it basically spits out a price. Uh, whether you use that price is up to you, and you're gonna you're gonna want to base that decision on what you know about the customer. Um, and it's it's never gonna be a black and white thing. It's always gonna be about you trying to figure out how much you think the image is worth. Um, but one one thing that I, I do want to add as well is that, uh, as I said earlier, people have a big problem with asking for money for their photography. It's, there's a lot of stigma involved with asking for money. But if you ever intend to to do this professionally, um, you, you're probably going to have to ask for money at some point. And the best time to get used to that, to practice doing that, is while you've still got a nice safe job to, to right. fall back on. <laughs> is so anything to add there guys i'd add one thing and that's for aspiring photographers everywhere if you intend to make this part of your living um the one of the answers is that that trading an image for credit is <laughs> is never yeah. acceptable unless it's something extraordinary if national geographic said to me you know we want this image and we'll publish it for credit uh Maybe. <laughs> maybe, maybe, yeah, maybe. It's still, it's still a maybe, yeah. still a maybe. But yeah. you know, you've you've got to be able to stand up and let the client know that you, know, you are a professional and nobody works for free. They don't work for free, right? And, and you shouldn't work for free. And that confidence comes from knowing how much you need to charge. And that's why I started with the uh, the calculating a day rate. If you know how much you need to live, you have to earn per day to live then it gives you the confidence to, to, to talk about money without having to, you know, if, if you start to fall back and you, and you look all unconfident, then you, you're not going to get them. You know, people are going to just think that you're a, you're a hack and walk away. If you talk with confidence about what, you know, and why you, you know, if pe people a lot of the time you find you're educating the client as much as you're, you're trying to get paid, you know, because a lot of people just don't understand what goes into a, a photograph and right yeah you know, so the the assignments and things but a lot of a lot of the time people say oh yeah well i charge this amount for a, for the day but it's taken me 3 days to do the post processing you should charge for your post processing yeah you know, people don't charge for that sort of stuff and it's important that you do because you never want to be in a position where you resent doing the work i want to share something that um, i learned at a very high price. Mm. <laughs> Those are sometimes the best lessons, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. So I engaged the services of a very, very well-known uh, photographer. If I told you his name, you would go, oh, sure, of course. Mm. And I, I engaged him to help me as I was getting my business going mm. as, as in consulting. I asked him to spend X number of hours with me. 
And he said, okay, this is my price. And so, you know, I, you know my background is in sales. I, I was in medical sales for a couple, couple of decades. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the hot negotiator. Watch this. And I, I tried to negotiate the price down. And, and here's the thing you want to take away. What he said to me, I will never forget. He said, I'm sorry. My time is just too valuable to discount. Yep. Boom. Yep. And, I, and boy, it set me back on my heels. And I thought, right. Well, like, first lesson learned, I guess I'll pay his price. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, there, there's a lot of, you hear a lot of it. I mean, I, I've had people come to me and say, you know, I, I need a bit of help with this. And um, they ask for a, a price for consulting. And when I tell them how much I, I need, they say, oh, well, that's more than I was expecting. And I was saying, well, you know, I'm probably going to do a better job than you expect as well. Um, Outstanding. Uh, yeah. And it, it's like, you know, you, you have to be, you can't be too smug. I mean, it's. It's definitely uh, some, it's a skill that you have to develop. But I, I will walk away from it. If I can't um, you know, help the person to understand why I, I'm asking for, for X number of dollars, then I'll just walk away. And, and I, I walk away from jobs more often than I, than I actually do them. You know? And, and that, that's fine with me because I've said on, I've said on this program before, I, I don't want to work. I don't want to do jobs that I am not happy to do. I don't want to agree to do a job for a, a reduced amount or, or less than... I don't mind reducing a little bit if I'm happy with the, with the conditions. But I don't want to accept a job and then do it with a, with a frown on my face. You know, One it, of the what, lessons in sales is you never, never discount without having a valid reason to do so. Yeah, exactly. Once yep. they get that first discount, that is never going to stop. Yeah, and you always invoice for the full amount and then include the discount as a percentage so that the next time they actually do the job and you say it's it's not $800, it's 1000 or it's, you know, whatever, then you say, well, yeah, they'll come to you and say, well, you did it for this last time. I said, yeah, and that was because I gave you a, a first-time customer 20% discount or right. something like and, that. And in exchange, you gave me something. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, a this testimonial is... or something. Yeah, exactly, yeah. I mean... Uh, that, that's actually a good point. I mean, testimonials are golden. If you do a good job and and you get someone to give you a, a testimonial, I I think that they can be golden and, and really really. Uh, but the, they, the problem is is that again, people are often not confident enough enough to ask for them. Um, you know, you, you do a job and you think, well, you know, I, I didn't really hit that out of the park. Um, from your perspective, hopefully your your expectations of yourself are, are high, and you thought you 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 are beating yourself up because you didn't do a great job. But from the perspective of the client, they are quite often very, very happy with the results. And so it's it's really useful to get a few testimonials to show to potential future customers that you're you know that you're gonna provide you're gonna come up with the goods and provide them with a good service. Um, so you know testimonials are also something that if if you can get them then ask i mean the worst the person can do is just say no or or say oh yeah i'll get back to you and if they don't get back to you they were either just too busy to do it or maybe they didn't really think that you were worth worth asking for the uh you know providing a testimonial for but if that's the case you've got to really start to work on on improving the service that you're providing so it's still something that you are gonna you're gonna win from so asking for a testimonial is kind of one of those win-win things as well we are about to, we're coming into the pick of the week section. So let's talk about, uh, about our, our picks. It can be anything that you want, as long as it's remotely photography related. So Ron, what do you have? So my pick is, um, 
for Mac iOS users primarily, or maybe only. I'm not quite sure what platform it runs on. But, you know, a lot of times if you are away from your home computer but you have your phone or your tablet with you, uh, it's very handy to be able to get back to your home computer using some sort of a, a VPN or a VNC kind of network thing. And my VNC of choice is an iOS app called Screens, and they just announced version 3 of Screens. It's S-C-R-E-E-N-S. And it's just a really simple way to, you know, pull out your phone or pull out your tablet and remotely log on to the computer that's sitting back on your desk or on your coffee table at home when you forget something or you need to drag a file out of some folder and drag it into Dropbox or whatever. Um, it's not the cheapest piece of software out there. I think it's uh, 20 bucks, $19 or something like that. But, you know, I use it often enough, and it's just it's that thing where you're just out somewhere and you just realize, oh, I just need to be able to do something really quick on my machine at home, get this file over to me, something like that. So check it out. There's a couple of other ones that I have not looked at that, you know, are a little bit cheaper, but I can definitely vouch for this being uh, a well-put-together, useful piece of software. Excellent. I should look at that. I'm not totally happy with what I've been using. Yeah. Be- before we jump into Charlie's pick of the week. I wanted to also thank another of the sponsors this week, Shutterstock. This episode of This Week in Photo is brought to you by Shutterstock.com. At Shutterstock.com, you'll find the perfect image or video for your next creative project, whether it's for your website, a publication, an advertisement, a video, or another type of project. Shutterstock adds 20,000 images every day. So every time you visit the site, you'll likely find something new. And you can download any image in any size and pay only one price. And they've added a new spectrum. You can now sort images by color spectrum. Many creative teams use it to get inspiration and ideas. Now, you can sign up for Shutterstock today, and you don't need a credit card. You can just start an account and begin using Shutterstock to help you imagine what your next project might look like and save your favorite images to a light box to review later. Then once you decide to purchase, just use the offer code TWIP10 to receive 25% off any package. at Shutterstock.com and for 25% off on new accounts, just use the offer code TWIP10. And we thank Shutterstock for their support. Okay, so Charlie, let's see, what, is, what do you have for your pick of the week? Well, I've got two, and and as you you said, it can be remotely photography related. And this one is the the word remote plays uh, plays quite nicely into it. I've just met a company called Global Rescue, and this might interest you, Martin. So mm. for people like us who are out in the boonies, and um, honestly, the the more time I spend on the Arctic tundra, the happier I am. Um, this company sells. Uh, protection package of sorts where uh, it could be uh, if you have a medical emergency and you're out, out on the tundra, you pick up your satellite phone and dial them up and they will medevac you from anywhere to anywhere. So um, that's pretty good. Uh, they also have evacuation packages and protection packages for uh, politically sensitive areas where there might be, you know, who knows, um, riots or government overthrows or that sort of thing. But primarily, I'm interested in it because I, I, I can't explain why, but I really do enjoy the tundra quite a bit. And uh, I spend quite a bit of time there. So, Do, uh, do they have I, anything like uh, where you don't need a, uh, you know, a, a satellite phone, anything GPS-based or like a... I've seen, I've seen some 
um, little dongles that you you basically just press and it starts to send out a signal. Are they, are they only for short range? I'm not are sure. Are you thinking? Are you thinking of the Spot GPS uh, satellite sure. machine? The little orange and black, I think it is. Maybe that it was. Uh, it was a, orange in there. <laughs> yeah, it's a personal locator beacon. Oh yeah, yeah, that's probably what it yeah. is. The Spot one is is pretty good, but it does require a subscription. Uh, a- ACS makes some that don't require a subscription. The spot ones can send a few pre-programmed messages to a few pre-programmed places, so that gets a little bit of extra utility. Though I'm not a fan of having a $25 a month subscription, so uh, I'm looking at the ACS myself, and I think I'm going to just skip that and go to a sat phone. Um, sat phones are, you know, just that much more um, useful in communication. But yeah, it gives you much more flexibility. Yeah, I mean, if 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 you come across a rise in the tundra and you surprise a polar bear or you know something that decides it's going to take a chunk out of you yeah throw the sat phone uh, it, at it and run like hell <laughs> <laughs> well you know if, if you survive the encounter but you're injured or yeah. if you have a heart attack or you you know fall down and break a leg or you know something it's it's nice to know that i can i can dial something up and they'll uh they're going to scramble the jets and and get me out of there or so in fact, in Alaska last year, I had two two clients that were eighty eight years old. <laughs> I thought, good heavens, this, I, I certainly hope they make ninety nine. Yeah. <laughs> oh, eighty nine. Yeah. yeah. So. so, what was the second one, Charlie? The second one. So, I, so on these exploratory runs I've been doing, I, I did a, an exploratory trip uh, driving the Dalton Highway from Fairbanks to the Arctic Ocean, and I thought I'd really like to GPS, you know, um, geotag all these great scenic sites and where I found the wildlife and all this. And I looked, you know, boy, the one DX you can, for 300 bucks, you can buy this little GPS plugin, which by the way, just sits there and gobbles battery life. Or for less than that, you can buy this Nikon AW110 point and shoot. It is shockproof, waterproof, has Wi-Fi, has GPS, has a compass and has an altimeter. <laughs> I thought, right. <laughs> well, this, this simplifies the whole thing. So, mm. You know, everything's geotagged. So if, as I come across a great scene that I want to be able to get to again next year and the year after, I just take a picture with this camp with this little camera, this AW110, download it into Aperture, which is my my program of choice, and it'll show it right on the map. Yeah. It's just a, it costs less than the the Canon uh, GPS module and doesn't drain battery. Now it it in itself it's a little bit of a battery hog, so you got to keep your battery charged. Or buy an extra, but it's just so much more useful. Yeah. So I really like it. Okay, cool. That means that means I'm bilingual. I, I speak Nikon and Canon. <laughs> yeah, well, I have some some Nikon binoculars, so I'm kind of in the, in both camps. Um, okay, so my pick is I don't know how you pronounce this. The Bergion, B E R G E O N. It's a Bergion five seven three three air blower. And this is, it's actually, I mean, this is one of those things that it just makes you happy owning. I mean, there, there are some products that are, that just feel so good in your hands that you, uh, you know, the quality, uh, it just makes me happy just blowing the dust off the, off the front of my lens. And um, this thing is, it's actually, you, you can't buy it at B&H. I bought it in a camera shop here in Japan. Um, I did find a, a, comp- a website, ESA. S-L-I-N-G-E-R.com, Esslinger. And it's actually a watch accessories and a watch repair tools website. 
And these things are, they're Swiss made for watchmakers, but they've got a really, really tight nozzle. Um, so the air comes out very powerful, but it's, it's not the sort of nozzle that I've had blowers before that I keep in my pocket in the field where you put a lens in the pocket as well. And the next thing you know, the nozzle is bent and you can't, you can never get it quite back right. Um, this thing is just pure quality. They're a little bit expensive. I think on the uh, Esslinger site, it's uh, 1695. So probably a little bit more expensive than your regular blowers. Um, in Japan, I, I paid, I think, $25 for this, but it's worth every penny. It just makes me happy owning it. So if you're, if you're thinking you might need a new, a new air blower, take a, a look at the, the Bergion 5733. So uh, let's see. We are at the end of the episode. We have, if you stay tuned, there's going to be an interview with Nathan Morris, which is great, um, which I say uh, without even listening to it. So it's probably not, not uh, yeah, do take a listen to that. I, uh, I've, I know of Nathan and uh, it's going to be a great interview, I'm sure. So, uh, guys, where can people catch up with you, Ron? Oh, when I manage to get around to it, I still post on Twitter occasionally. It's just Ron Brinkman, or uh, follow me on Google+. I will sometimes put stuff on there as well. Yeah, great. And Charlie? Well, you can get to most of everything I do through my website, which is theamazingimage.com. And um, I'm also somewhat active. I need to be more active on Google+. And it's uh, Charlie McPherson is the username, so you can find me there. Okay. I do next to nothing on Twitter. I'm still trying to convince myself that Facebook isn't a complete waste of time, but I'm <laughs> getting more and more sure that it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm with you there. Yeah, well, the same for me. You can find me at martinbaileyphotography.com. Pretty much everything I'm up to is linked there, including links to my Twitter and Google Plus and Facebook and all of that. So thanks, guys. It's been a, a great show. I... Uh, a few, a few areas where uh, my inexperience running this show showed, I think. But apart from that, I've really enjoyed chatting with you both. Yeah, it was wow. great chatting with you guys. Yeah, yeah thank you pleasure. very much. Really, I really enjoyed it. Thanks. Yeah. So, And to keep up with everything in the TWIP universe, check out thisweekinphoto.com. And please join the community on Google Plus as well. And with that, it's time to take that lens cap off. <laughs> This Week in Photo is a Pixelcore.tv production, produced by Suzanne Llewellyn, with technical producers John Riley and Alutha Jamakar. All right, I'm here with Mr. Nathan Morris. He's a, I think, I guess in general, you just call Nathan a, an entrepreneur, and yeah, he would kind of be the quintessential entrepreneur because some of the things that he has done and is doing. So he runs this thing called Entrepreneur's Inner Circle, of which I'm a member, and I'd suggest you become a member as well. He's been doing this stuff for over 10 years, so he knows his way around this stuff. He's an author. He's written an Amazon.com bestseller. He consults with gigantic companies like Toshiba or Toshiba, depending on where you're from. Um, Sears, MTV, and Nickelodeon. And now he's here with me on This Week in Photo 
to talk about a whole litany of stuff that I have lined up to pepper his brain with <laughs> while I have him on the hot seat so I could uh, hopefully get a little bit of what's in his head into my head and then ostensibly your head. So well, uh, welcome to the show, Nathan. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Oh, you're welcome. So let's let's kick this off. After that grandiose introduction I just did, let's talk about some... Um, yeah, I wanted to take this in the direction of just what some brass tack things that photographers can do to move from being a shooter, assuming that they want to just move, they want to be in business for themselves and make money, moving from just a, being a hobbyist into being a pro. So let's kick it off with some common mistakes, like some common mistakes that you see in the hobbyist mindset before they make that leap into actually getting money in the door. Sure. Uh, so I'm not a photographer myself. I know enough about photography probably to be dangerous, but uh, I'm definitely a, a total amateur in that regard. Uh, I've definitely dealt with a lot of photographers over the years, and I've also consulted with a couple. And uh, one of the very first things when I was thinking about for this show, I was like, well, what is the, one of the biggest mistakes that I see over and over again every time that I work with a photographer? And I thought, you know, I actually haven't done business with a photographer more than once or twice. In fact, Actually, now that I think about it, I've never done business with a photographer more than once. Yeah. And that's strange to me because I've never actually hired a photographer that I was unsatisfied with. There was nothing wrong with their work. I mean, their photos were beautiful. They had great equipment. Everything about them was great. You know, they treated me with respect. They showed up on time, those kind of things. Well, except for maybe one or so. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I started thinking about is, is that, you know, when it came time to get other photos done, whether it was for professional use or whether it was for the family or something like that, I found that, uh, you know, there was somebody else there that was standing right there that was within reach, whether it was a friend or maybe it was a friend of a friend or maybe it was another photographer who had an ad out that I saw. And I responded to that person rather than to the person that I was already satisfied with. Now, you know, a lot of us, we think to ourselves, well, if someone is really satisfied with our work, you know, if we do a great job and everything, the hobbyist, you know, the person that's just new to business, they think, well, of course, they'll be loyal to me and they'll come back. And whenever they need another photo or whatever done, they'll say, hey, Nathan, let's call up Nathan, get him. But the reality is, is that unless you've just done a stellar job that's just knocking it out of the ballpark, and even if you have, a lot of times they just don't remember you because you, you're out of their mind. You're out of sight, out of mind. Yeah. So that's one of the very biggest mistakes is not following up with people after the fact. And the other thing was is that most of them niche themselves, which is a good thing. They niche themselves as wedding photographers or as maybe a band photographer or a professional headshot photographer. But the problem was is that they never expanded beyond that. So if they did a wedding with me, for example, my wife and I got married not long ago, uh, they kind of had the attitude of they were done with me forever. Well, that's a shame because there's still going to be family photos and other things. And going out and getting another customer every time is going to be time-consuming for sure and also can be very expensive if you're advertising. Yeah, absolutely. So so the, the it sounds like the the problem that you're seeing or that one of the issues is that one touch point get the money, get the cash and run whereas it's important to build that relationship. So the the thing boils down to building a long-term relationship that you can nurture and then hit especially in the case of a wedding, right? Like you were saying there's many life events that happen down the line after the wedding that uh that you want that client to be in you want to be in that client's mind when those things happen when they need a photographer. So how do you do that? How do you build how do you build a repeat client? I mean, you know, other than, I mean, is it as simple as putting them on a mailing list and just saying, hey, I'm still here, you know, it's Halloween, I can do Halloween pictures, you know, or is it deeper than that? 
Well, you know, I could start out by telling you it's really complicated and there's all kinds of things that you need to know, and it's kind of true, but at the same time, not doing anything at all is the biggest mistake of all. So if even you just send out a monthly email that just says, hey, I'm still here, that's better than just completely ignoring them completely. Yeah. Now, with that said, yeah, I mean, what you need to do is, first of all, the great thing about photographers is that you get an opportunity to really spend a lot of time with your client. So, you know, you get to know them, you get to know their personality, you get to know their family and things like that, typically, when you work with them. Now, the good news about that is, is that you already kind of have a relationship with them. So now let's continue that on a little bit. So let's put them on an email list. Let's put them on a mailing list. You know that old thing called snail mail? Yeah. Well, a lot of people really enjoy getting letters from people that they know, especially in this day and age when people don't get real mail anymore. So uh, once a month, send out a little one-page newsletter. It doesn't have to be anything too fancy or send it out via email if you prefer or both. You could do both, and that way if they miss your email or if they miss your, uh, your snail mail thing, then they're still going to get it hopefully in one way or the other. And the content, you say, well, what do I send them? Do I send them photography tips or whatever? No, you send them photos that you've done. But more importantly, don't necessarily try to sell them every time, but start talking about a little bit of life with Frederick. You know, what is it like to be with Frederick on a daily basis? Who are some of the cool people that he's gotten to photograph lately? Uh, and put those kinds of things in there because people like to read about people they know. And you want to kind of create this relationship, this kind of friendship with them so that, you know what, they will think of you when they have an, an interesting opportunity or they might have never thought of you uh, for family photos or something and they see a family photo that you did. They really love it. And they're like, hey, you know, we haven't had a family photo in 10 years. Let's call them up. And so you get that opportunity without really selling. You don't have to be like one of those super pushy kind of guys. You could just use your relationship to double, triple, quadruple your business. And, and stay in that person's mind. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll tell you, you know, I I was on the fence about the uh, the whole snail mail thing because you and I had spoken about that briefly a while ago, and but when I signed up for the the entrepreneur's inner circle, you know, you, of course I'm on your list and I get I get your newsletters and I'm like, okay, now I understand, you know, because everyone in the world is sending emails and I get emails and I just delete, archive, delete, delete, delete all day long. But when I get something substantive in the mail from someone that is, you know, that I respect in the industry and that has taken the time, I think that's the big part, that has taken the time to put together this thing that looks awesome, you know, and I'm getting this in the mail, it has more impact than just, oh, yet another email from someone. So, yeah, I, I'd have to second that as, a, as, a, as being on the receiving end of something, some of your mailing. So that's awesome. So then what about Twitter? You know, so fast forwarding out of the world of physical snail mail and all that stuff, we've got social media. And specifically, I want to talk about Twitter. How does that factor into all this stuff? Should it be a, should it be a cohesive, integrated thing? Or are you just dropping tweets out every now and then to keep on top of people's minds? I think that with Twitter, for the most part, it's still a relationship building medium. So you're not necessarily going to drive business through Twitter. You can, but it's not necessarily a media that I would use to be specifically trying to get people to a website or specifically trying to get people to take action with. Now, you might get that or you might not. But first of all, you want to make sure that you're following the people that you're doing business with, obviously. So you want to have another way of being in their life so that they're seeing you on a regular basis. Again, your tweets don't necessarily have to be about photography. In fact, I would actually recommend that your your Twitter account is actually kind of more of a personal thing. It's maybe not as personal as you would, you know, your real personal stuff. You don't want to be too silly or whatever. But, you know, you don't want to necessarily be so-and-so photography and then try to, you know, build a 
following on Twitter that way. I don't think that's the ideal way to do it. But the cool thing about Twitter, and see, I don't know a whole lot about Facebook, and I think Facebook is a really powerful medium uh, for photographers, but I know a lot more about Twitter. And with Twitter, the cool thing that you can do is there's a tool out there called Manage Flitter, M-A-N-A-G-E-F-L-I-T-T-E-R. You can Google it if you didn't quite catch that. And uh, it's a really cool tool to manage your Twitter following, if you will. So one of the things that it allows you to do is you can search out followers of other people that you are like, or you can actually search for people in your hometown that have certain things in their profile. So let's say, for example, that uh, one of the things that you're looking for are people that are getting married in your area because you're a wedding photographer. Well, a very simple thing you could do is you could start searching for people that are searching or typing about their planning of their wedding with certain keywords. Then you could follow those people. This is the equivalent of basically just tapping them on the shoulder and saying, hey, I'm over here. And then, of course, when they see someone has followed them, they'll usually look at them and say, hey, who is this guy? Who is this girl? And at that point, they'll make a decision whether they want to follow you or not. But the point is, is you can start to build this little following in your own community or within your own niche. Or if maybe you're an artist or something like that, you could follow people that are following artists that are like you. So I think it's a really cool little way to do it. Uh, Facebook and some of the others don't allow you to do it quite like that. So it's one of the reasons I'm a big fan of Twitter, and I've built a very large Twitter following. How many, uh, how many people do you have following like you on Twitter right now? Uh, 21,000 or something like that. Wow, wow, that's really cool. Okay, so when you, when you look at Twitter and managing and staying in touch with that 21,000 user base, um, how are you doing everything manually? In other words, are you tweeting real time like okay right now I have something interesting to say so I'm going to tweet about it or do you use some of the services that are out there to to sort of queue up tweets so that you can have them sort of dripping out over time I do a little bit of both Uh, I think it's important to have those kind of sporadic things in there so you know when I'm doing something really cool I'll take a picture of it put it up on Twitter immediately and if I'm doing something that might have some kind of connection with some of the people that I'm influencing. Mm -hmm. In other words, if I'm at a particular type of sporting event with a certain team or anything like that, that I can connect with people that, you know, don't know that they have that in common with me, I'll make sure to put that out. But manual stuff is a little bit not very time efficient. Now, if you're on Twitter anyway, great. But if you're like me and you're busy, then I also do some automatic stuff. So I do schedule some of my tweets. I schedule certain quotes and things like that to go out, which people really enjoy. And it gives me another opportunity to show up in their Twitter feed. But then also I have a blog. So what I'll do is I actually just automatically tweet old blog posts back onto Twitter. So if you use WordPress, there's plenty of uh, plugins to do this. I use one, I think it's called Tweetly. And uh, I could just set it up to run every 36 hours or so and just post a, hey, you might have missed. And the interesting thing is, is you would think that, for example, if you, if you have an ego like I do, I guess, uh, you would think that people read every blog post that you put out and that you could never repeat something on Twitter or anywhere else. But I've got people that are even big fans of mine that are you know, retweeting and commenting on posts that I wrote almost a year and a half ago. Wow. You know, and it's like brand new to them. And I actually have taken the date and time off of my posts and stuff, too, but they never noticed it anyway. So, I mean, you can kind of mix and match. I think if you're blogging, especially if you're a photographer and you've got little, you know, cool photos or cool stories, especially. So if you've gotten a chance to shoot a a celebrity, a local celeb, you know, anything like that, that definitely needs to go in your automatic feed. See, that that is awesome. That that tip is golden because I had not considered going back in time and mining and like on this week in photo we're up to th- episode 326 right now you know and it's always 
okay, what's next? What's next? What's next? And I ne- it never really occurred to me to remind people because we're getting new people all the time want- listening to the show. So why not remind them or let them know about all this other gold that's behind us? You know, that's that's a great tip. Thank you for that. So let's 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 wrap it up a little bit. I want to I want to talk about the transition going from. Just a plain, you know, and I use the plain, the word plain, tongue in cheek, but a plain photographer that is, it's not so much a professional, but you're like me, you know, I don't shoot all day, every day, uh, but I shoot occasionally, I make some money, you know, so going from that to a full-time IRS sanctioned photographer, you know, I know marketing has to be in there somewhere. Explain from your perspective, how would someone go from the hobbyist level all the way up through to, okay, this is what I do. And I call myself a pro. Sure. So here's, here's the mindset that everybody has. And I was one of them. And I know many artists, especially fall into this category. And the mindset is this, I'm going to become a photographer. So I got to get better equipment, I got to get better at my craft. I got to learn lighting. I got to learn this and I got to learn that. And I'm going to work on my craft. I'm going to become the best wedding photographer there is. Unfortunately, you could do all of that. You can spend all that money. You can spend all that time and get all that equipment. But at the end of the day, if you don't have any clients, you don't have a business. And that's a really big problem. And, you know, a lot of people are puzzled when they've, they've spent just years perfecting whatever it is that they do. And they get to a point where they're looking around. There's guys that have half the experience and half the equipment and half of the ability. And they're, I mean, they're mopping the floor with them in terms of getting clients and actually putting dollars in the bank. And so if you're going to step out and this isn't going to be an art form anymore, and even if it is, if you're going to try to make a living at it, then the mindset change has to change to being a marketer of photography services, not necessarily a photographer. So when you describe yourself, instead of describing yourself, maybe not to other people, but to yourself, you think of yourself, instead of being in the photography business, I'm in the marketing business of photography services. And it seems like a semantics thing, but it really is an important distinction. Because once you see that, you say, okay, well, what do I need to get better at? Well, I need to get better at marketing. That's what I need to get better at. And that doesn't mean necessarily putting out more ads. It means how do you deal with clients and how do you encourage them to refer how do you get them to come back again and again? Are there some ways that maybe we could build into our business a way that we guarantee that they're going to come back again and again? So maybe they get billed monthly for, you know, they're going to get their family portrait every year and whatever. I mean, depending on your business and how you want to run it. And so that's one of the things that we talk a lot about in Entrepreneurs Inner Circle, as you know. And that is that basically we want to talk about how can we design a business that works around the way that we want to do business But most importantly, how can we focus on taking these really cool marketing ideas from other businesses and kind of time-proven stuff and apply it to, in this case, the photography business? And that's really where the big defining line is between the guy who's not making any money and the guy that's making quite a lot of money. It's the the difference between driving a cheap car and maybe an expensive car. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So let, let's just before we wrap this up, I want to have you because we we talked about entrepreneurs' uh, inner circle a little bit, and I want to get into it just a little bit deeper so that folks that are watching this or listening to this know what that is. Because I would, like I said at the beginning, I would encourage for folks to definitely check it out. It's a really cool thing that you put together there, and it's like a direct conduit into your brain. So explain the genesis of that and where where it came from and and who it's for. Well, originally, it actually started out as a financial coaching program. So I've done a lot of work with people on their personal finances, helping them get out of debt and that kind of thing. And then as it kind of evolved, I started realizing this is more and more of a psychological thing. 
And the people that were in it were more and more interested in saying, hey, you know, I, I understand that I need to probably be out of debt and that I probably need to have some savings. And then, you know, I'd introduce this concept that there's this third leg of financial freedom that most people never get, which is that eventually you've got to stop relying on a single primary source of income, whether that be your job in most people's cases or one client if you're a photographer or something like that. That's a very bad place to be is one. So essentially it kind of grew out of that, but I've been doing a lot of different things. So I've done a lot of software development. Uh, I've done a lot of creative services and consulting. I've done a lot of publishing. I've got a lot of products in the automotive industry, for example. I've got, I believe, actually, Frederick, you and I met through a software project that I developed for an e-commerce solution, yes. of all things. And so I've done a whole lot of different things. And I said, well, hey, you know, let's start teaching other entrepreneurs how to do these things. And for me, it came out of the fact that, frankly, I didn't have a support group. I didn't have any people that I could share this information with that they could share with me. And so I wanted to develop an organization where entrepreneurs of all kinds, whether they're just starting out, they don't know what the heck they're doing in the first place, or they've been in for a long time and they're just kind of spinning their wheels, to kind of come together and get some proven stuff that actually will work, that they can take to their business today and start using to start making more money and to get themselves out of the woods if they're in the woods or to you know really blow up like they've been wanting to for a long time. Yeah. Um, and also to network with one another, make connections and stuff like that so that, you know, when I hear of somebody, when I meet somebody that could be a really good resource to somebody, usually I try to reach out to them and let them know and connect them and things like that. So it's, it's a very cool professional development organization if you're serious about getting into business or if you want to expand your business abilities and especially if you want to try to make your business about your lifestyle rather than what everybody else wants for I you. I love that. I love I love that the the diversification thing you hinted at. One of the analogies that I like to draw is it's like a submarine, you know, if, if folks don't know much about submarines, you know that they're compartmentalized so that if they take a torpedo hit, one compartment floods and the whole thing doesn't go down. If it was just one, like you were saying, one torpedo would take it down. The analogy the or the the direct relationship to business or or a job would be your your world or Frederick dot Frederick Inc. is it is that submarine with just one source of income, that's one torpedo that can take me down. But if I split it up into multiple, then one goes away and I'm not sinking, you know, anytime soon. So yeah, that's great advice. So where where's entrepreneurs or the, the academy at and where where or the inner circle? Where's the inner circle at that people can go check it out? Yeah, it's at it's at nathanwmorris.com, N-A-T-H-A-N-W-M-O-R-R-I-S.com, forward slash T-W-I-P. So I set up a special page for you guys so awesome. that you can go there. And uh, when you go, uh, there's a there's two coaching calls. And the, the name of this course is probably going to change because I'm not sure that I love it. But it's called Profit, Profit, Profit Explosion Blueprint. And it's basically two past coaching calls that I did that there's about a dozen different creative systems that I explained. And basically what this was is I took some of my information from when I worked with Nickelodeon and some of these other bigger companies and basically discussed how you take these dull, normal, average ideas or business ideas and how you come up with brand new ones or how you find hidden profit centers in a business that you already have or whatever. And it's just a very cool little uh, two CD set. And then there's also an additional set to kind of get you set up into Entrepreneur's Inner Circle and let you know what it's all about and how it works and all that. And it's a $197 course, but it's free for you guys. 
uh, just ask that you pay for shipping and uh, you get a two-month trial of the Entrepreneur's Inner Circle, which means that you get access to our monthly coaching calls, which Frederick can talk, tell you a little bit about that and yeah. testify to that. Yep. Uh, the newsletter as well and uh, some other benefits that uh, are very valuable if you're at all interested in being business for your, in business for yourself or you are currently. Very cool. Thank you for putting that together. That's, uh, that's, that's valuable stuff. And you know, you heard it here. I'm using it. So definitely go, <laughs> go dive in listeners and, and check that out. Cool. Nathan. All right. Well, I appreciate you taking the time this afternoon. This was a great chat. And uh, yeah, hopefully we'll stay in touch. I'll definitely be listening to you going forward. <laughs> but let's, uh, let's definitely stay in touch. And, um, and this week in photo listeners, I'm sure we'll have a ton of questions for you going forward, too. So thank you. I appreciate your time. All right. Take care. Take care.